content discussed on this show is not necessarily the opinion of the cast of Spiritually Raw. And topics quite often are for mature audiences only. So, if you happen to have your 13-year-old listening in... Hello, everybody, and welcome to Spiritually Raw. Thank you very, very, very much. Happy New Year. Happy 2020. Another decade is now upon us right now, so really pretty interesting stuff there. So I would like to also thank everyone for tuning in again and welcoming our producer, Juan Carlos, and Sarge Brown, who's commentating with us today. And you'll find us here every day or every Wednesday and Monday, right? Well, yeah, now yeah, it's yeah, Monday, yeah. And Monday and Wednesday, Wednesday you'll be able 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Eastern Standard Time at BBS Radio. And if you're an expert or authority or have an amazing personal story that revolves around the supernatural, we want to know about it. So all you got to do is go to spirituallyraw.com and hit the apply button and we will get back to you pretty much pretty shortly, right? I would say so. <laughs> all right. All right everybody, so, and everybody, uh, don't forget to follow us at... Spirit, uh, Facebook for, uh, forward slash spiritually raw, and also you can connect with us on our group page, Secrets to Radio Riches, on Facebook. All right, so who's you're up? only one show away. Jay, you're really in a hurry today. Yeah, who's, up? Who's, up? <laughs> who's on? Who's on? Who's on? We have I'm two. Excited. I'm excited. All right, well, of course, we have two great guests today, uh, James and Gina, and uh, let's. There we go. Gina's up first. Gina's journey has not been an easy one. After a serious ski accident, she became the head principal. Hold on, I gotta flip the page here. Um, at a school for 21 years, mostly from a wheelchair. She is the number one best-selling author and founder of the Thrive Together Tribe. Welcome, Gina, to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Really pleased to be here. Oh, our audience loves you, as you can tell. So how are you? Very good to have you here, too. So, uh, well, you got a lot of stuff going on here. You had a ski accident in 1983. You fell about 150 to 200 feet down, huh? That's right. Well, actually, it wasn't technically skiing at the time. I was sitting on a mogul on a black run, uh, and the mogul gave way. So um wasn't actually skiing skiing, but yes, I was there because I was skiing. So what happened? Take us to that moment. What exactly happened? Um, the day before, I'd had a really bad fall, and I'd lost a bit of confidence. And so I'd said to the friends I was skiing with, I'm going to do some uh, gentle runs in the morning. I'll meet you for lunch. And they said, well, when I met them, we've found this fabulous new run. Come with us. It was a beautiful day, one of those very sunny days where everything's crisp and sparkly. And we went up on the chairlift and um, I followed them. And as they turned the corner, it was pretty obvious that they had taken a wrong turn. And instead of the lovely red run that was going to go for three or four kilometers, we were on the Schindlergratz, which is the most difficult black run in St. Anton. And it was full of moguls. And your listeners may be familiar with moguls, but they're they're where the, um, the weather has carved out the snow and they can be like cobbles, little bumps, but these were monsters. The whole field was full of, of moguls that were about six foot tall. And I'd skied the first third and fallen um, and then I managed to get to where my friends were and they were each sitting on a mogul rather like an elf sitting on a mushroom. I took my skis off and we were talking in the sunshine, just laughing and chatting, and the top of the mogul gave way. Oh, my God. 
and anyway. there was nowhere to land because it was so steep and because of these moguls. Was, I just were all three of you down. there? I mean, did all three of you go down? No, no, just me. There were five of us. Just, just my because we were each sitting on an in an in, uh, an individual mogul, and where it had been so hot, the top of the mogul, my mogul. Um, just gave way and I assume it was because they had reached that point some time before I did because I'd fallen and had to retrieve a ski and get down so the sun had been on my particular mogul for longer than theirs whether it was that I don't know but I bounced there was nowhere to land um, for I'm told 150 200 feet oh my god how long was your recovery on all that well it was a bit complicated in that um, by this time, I'd now um, negotiated most of the slope, and I didn't want to use the blood wagon. So, uh, with their help, I got back to the hotel and so, managed to. Sorry. Yeah. So wait a second. So when you were falling, did you feel like you were dying? I mean, well, that had I to be myself out, and I think that's probably what saved me because in uh, instead of of tensing I was floppy and so I probably did less damage than I would have done if I had been um, conscious but I had a bad concussion and I trapped a nerve in my neck and so I was off school for about um, three weeks got back in and was wearing a soft collar but I was due to be the deputy leader of the borough ski party so we took 150 odd children um, this time skiing to Switzerland and they gave me permission to ski to go because we were taking a medic with us as I managed all week and on the last day I was just exhausted and I said to um, uh, to my colleagues I was, I was getting more and more like Quasimodo I'm, I'm really sorry I'm going to have to go and lie down for a bit so I went up to my room and I lay on the bed and then discovered that I was paralysed down one side oh my gosh mm. Now, I, there were children all around. I didn't want to shout out and, and frighten the children, so I had to wait until a colleague um, came to find me. Um, and then all hell broke loose. Um, and I was taken off to hospital, and then I was off school for about three months. Um, what was the delay? Like, what had happened that it didn't, wasn't an immediate paralysis, but it was, like, do they know why that happened? The theory is that in the fall, the vertebrae had snapped onto the spinal cord and snapped off again, and that it had been bruised. Um, and because I went skiing again and I was pushing myself physically, that it irritated the spinal cord, which then swelled and cut off the the um, the nerve supply to my right uh, right side. Um, and the reality is that that following that ski accident, I mean, prior to that, people used my nickname was Tigger because I was had endless energy and I bounced about like a you know uh, like Tigger the like a little tigger. tigger like a little Tigger. And I didn't ever, I've never recovered that um, that energy. But I was back to school as as soon as I could, and and I, I was the deputy principal at that time. Um, so are, are you paralyzed now? You're in the wheelchair? Well, it, it gets more complicated than that because in 1996, I sneezed and ruptured a disc and I had failed back surgery syndrome, which meant I was a very good stalk 
managed to walk to the bottom of the garden, very small garden, took me 18 months. And then three months later, I was sick and I ruptured another disc and I was completely wheelchair bound. Mm. So I used a wheelchair to get around school from 1987. But in 96, I became wheelchair bound. And then again in 98. And I was completely wheelchair bound until um, I had a spinal stimulator fitted in 2004. Um, and gradually, I I don't use a wheelchair in the house or the garden now. I still use a wheelchair if I go out into town or go on holiday. Uh, but my mobility is currently the best it's been since 1996. But I'm still limited in terms of how, um, how far I can walk. So sort of layer upon layer, really. Um, but there have been huge gifts in the disability in that I couldn't physically get into my classroom. So I was made, um, um, in that first summer after the accident, um, my prin then principal suddenly died in his sleep and I became the principal. And what, um, and what grade and were you, what grade uh, were you uh, the principal for? Or what, what? I think in America the equivalent would be junior high. Okay, all right. Um, Big school, um, 500 children, which would be a, uh, considered a big school here for that age group. Um, and I was determined that the school was going to do well. So I had to find a way to empower people that didn't require me standing and looking over their shoulder because couldn't physically get into the classrooms because of the wheelchair. And it was incredibly mm -hmm. successful. Um, the school became one of the best, uh, uh, the, the, the inspectorate, the government inspectorate nominates schools each um, year, the 100 best schools in England. And I'm very proud of the fact that my school was on that list twice during my tenure as head. What, what did you do that was so different? Well, for most people, um, when you're developing others, I think that there is a tendency to micromanage, to um, to uh, to actually take some of the responsibility um, from the people, the very people you want to take responsibility. Um, and I had to find a way of facilitating people to recognise a their own self worth and their their potential, and then through the development program that I set up to actually develop those people to take radical responsibility for their own performance and shared responsibility for the performance of, of the, the, the rest of the staff. And it was incredibly successful. Uh, we were nominated as a beacon school and worked with hundreds of other teachers and dozens of other schools to help them use the same principles. And I left Headship in 2004, or uh, being a, a principal in 2004, and since then I've worked with businesses, um, and the same principles work. The widgets don't matter. It's about how do you get the very best out of your people, how do you lead them, and a big part of that is in order to lead others effectively and well, you have to lead yourself well. And that's where the radical responsibility becomes so important. And so radical responsibility. You've been a transformational coach since 2004. Yes, that's that's a, yes. that's a good that's a good experience there for you. So and you feel like um, you sound very optimistic about what happened to you. And, you know, so congrats for having a great outlook on that. Um, so okay. do you feel like that experience, though, is really what has gotten you there? I mean, do you feel like you would be here in, what are we, 2020 now if you didn't have that experience? Or do you feel like you maybe still be in education of that form? I'd like 
I'd like to think that I would have, have developed the same strategies and principles. But I'm honest enough to know that if I was going to do it, it would have taken me a lot longer. I mean, necessity is, is very much uh, the mother of invention. Um, and I think, you know, it, the tendency is, is to, to want to, um, to be engaged in a very different way when you're physically able to be, or you don't recognise the worth of, of supporting people so that they think for themselves within the parameters of the organisation. And one of the reasons we were so successful and one of the reasons the principles work is defining what success and excellence looks like in the context of that organisation and being very clear about the elements that go to create that excellence and how to get there. So, and I think- out of curiosity... How did you manage the staff, actually? Like, what did you... I understand the principles that you're applying, and that's so awesome. But how did you actually apply it? Was it something that you did? Uh, was it a course that they took? Was it... Did you have a meeting with them every day? Was it once a week? Like, what was the formula that got your team along with what you you showed them how to do? But what was the... How did it get into their mindset? Was it daily, weekly? How, how, how did that play out? How it, how it, the, the structure of it at the end is not how it began. And like anything, it was rather serendipitous to start with. But I think that the, what made the difference is that setting the expectations started from the advert. And so when people were appointed, I would start the interview with, before we get into the formal part of the interview, um, I just want to be very clear that if you are moody, if you don't want to be a good team member, if you don't want to work hard, if you don't want to learn and you're not interested in achieving excellence, this isn't the right place for you. Ah, so you pre-framed everything. And you kick them out. Absolutely. Yeah. Now then, first time they were moody or they weren't a good team member, I would go and very quietly say to them, do you remember that interview? Do you remember the conversation? You were given the opportunity to walk away. You said by staying there and through your interview, actually, you were all of those things. Now live up to that because that's my expectation mm. of you. So in other so words, was, you didn't put up with other people's crap? No, not at all. Very but good. That... In a developmental <laughs> way and there were no surprises. So I like the lines that. drawn and very clearly drawn right from the outset and I think a, a big part of it is I walked my talk. It's no good saying to people you can't be moody or you can't be aggressive if then you have a go at people in a in in in, in an aggressive way. So you have to walk your talk, or in my case, wheel your talk because I wasn't doing much walking. So how did you stay positive? What what what's your secret sauce? If you, the principle that you get more of what you focus on. So if you focus on what you can't do, so let me give you an example. I came out of hospital having had the second back operation and four days later I was back at school. Four months later, the, the uh, consultant said, I think we'll talk about you going back for a couple of hours a week. And I just laughed. And people have said to me, weren't you brave? But actually it was nothing to do with that. If I stayed at home, unless somebody had left me out a cup and saucer, um, had filled the kettle, I couldn't even make myself a drink. Mm. I could do daytime television and I could read. 
The alternative is a taxi could pick me up, take me to school. I'd got my wheelchair there. My mouth worked, my brain worked, my hands worked, my eyes worked. I could run my school really effectively, do thing, something that I cared about passionately and that I loved, or I could stay at home and feel disabled. Very great. Sarge, what do you got there, buddy? I see, I hear you, I hear you wanting to jump in. And hold that thought, though, because we got to take a quick word. So <laughs> you like how I did that, buddy? Sorry. All right. So hold on. We got, we got to go to work from our sponsor, everybody. More with Gina and Sarge's response and questions for her when we get back. Make 2020 an incredible year. Live the life you desire in your relationships, your career, your financial freedom, your health. It's all possible. Shari Hobson, an internationally known psychic counselor with over 20 years of experience as a karma and past life analyst, helps you move your dreams into reality. Her energy work in clearing and releasing blocks is being recognized by spiritual leaders and doctors from around the world. Clear your path to your purpose, passion, and potential. Book your session today at sherryhopson.com. That's S-H-E-R-R-Y-H-O-P-S-O-N.com. To go where no mind has gone before with Michael Telstar. Michael Telstar is a master remote viewer and holds seven world records in escapology. Learn to remote view and become the ultimate psychic detective. Find lost objects, locate treasure, and missing persons. Master of mentalism, Michael Telstar is making a special appearance at the Mega UFO Conference February 15th to the 22nd at the Aquarius Resort in Laughlin, Nevada. Join him as he amazes you with his entertaining demos to bend metal, levitate objects, and so much more. Michael Telstar is available for events and seminars on remote viewing, out-of-body adventures, and lucid dreaming. Connect with Michael Telstar at 437-234-7713 or michaeltelstar.com. That's Michael, T-E-L-S-T-A-R-R.com. All right, everybody, and welcome back to Spiritually Raw. Thank you very much. We are with Gina Gardner. And uh, Sarge, how you doing, buddy? Excellent, excellent. So, Gina, um, a lot of the traits that you're actually talking about is very militant, um, whether it's beliefs or not. And I don't mean it militant in a negative way, but it, the structure alone is um, so military. And a guy who's been in the military most of his adult life being uh, I definitely can be the one to say that it's like that. But nevertheless, it's excellent. I love the radical um, responsibility because, again, that's what it boils down to. So that brings me to my question. Do you think that initially when you started out that people responded to you because of your handicap? That's, that's a really interesting question and actually yeah. one that I've not been asked before. Uh, my gut feeling is I had to work harder because of the disability in the sense that I had to prove that um, that I could do it in a way that I'd, if I'd been able-bodied, um, I probably would not have had to, um, to work so hard at it because 
when you're going back to the 80s and 90s, there was a perception that if you were in a wheelchair, that you that if your legs didn't work, your brain didn't work either. Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, my secret in the early days, I didn't have a, an electric wheel, a travel chair. Uh, my secretary, who was a good, became a good friend, would take me out into the town, um, perhaps to do something for school, and you know people would use a particular voice. You know, would you like a sweetie? Um, <laughs> as if you were a complete idiot. Now it gave her hours of endless amusement, but mm. I think one my, and one of my worries was that would the would the parents, would the children, would the local authority take me seriously? And I've no doubt that that's been a driver for me because I wanted to make sure that the school didn't in any way, uh, they weren't um, uh, suffering because um, of my disability. Now, how much of that's my perception and how much of that is the true reality, I don't honestly know. But would you say that that is... uh a very good principle to actually stand by because I and I, I fully I'm fully persuaded at this point in my life that you know we all have some form of a handicap. Um, we may not admit it, but we we do, and in which some people see it, but we don't see it ourselves. But we don't work hard past those perceived limitations. So. Um, in your story, it actually helps to say, uh, you know, you do have to work harder because you have to work on your handicap where you feel that you're short. And you actually pointed that out in that radical responsibility with your staff, with those that were around you, because guess what? It is a handicap to be moody and mood swings and attitude and yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because it slows down progress. Yeah. I believe that disability is a metaphor for life. So if I diss my ability, if I belittle my ability, if I don't believe in myself, if I believe I'm too short, too tall, not clever enough, too old, too young, too fat, or whatever, that is a, a, a disability which stays with you. At least I can get into my wheelchair and wheel off, usually at full speed, I have to say. But I'd like to share a story with you, if I may. And for me, it, it, it was absolutely pivotal now I ran my school and you know many people would say that you know given the the level of disability that I had that was pretty amazing but I also worked for the government and I worked for the National College um, uh, and did all sorts of training and facilitation um, outside school partly to bring a budget into school but also to keep the school at cutting edge now, when I retired from headship at 2004, I then decided that I would um, train in neurolinguistic programming. And I did all of my training with the same organization. So when I finished, I wanted to see as many people use NLP um, as I could. And I ended up at the Excel Centre, which is a big exhibition centre in London. And Tony Robbins was there. 10,000 people on the programme. And in the morning of the first day, he was talking about um, a a course that he was running in California. And I immediately dismissed it. How would I manage on my own? I didn't have an electric travel chair. Um, I, you know, how I couldn't do it. So I completely discounted it. That night, we did the fire walk. And for your listeners who are not familiar with it, you walk over hot coals in bare feet 
um, about 30 or 40 feet. Um, and if you've got the right mindset, you don't get burnt at all. Now, I, I was still very unsteady. This is 2006 on my feet. And I could walk a few steps. Um, but with the help of somebody either side, I managed the firewalk. And I was really chuffed. Chucked a little mint balls. Wow, that's great. You made it through the whole walk? I did. And I turned around and I sat in my wheelchair. But the guy behind me was that's a double extraordinary. Amputee. Oh, my God. He had no leg below the knee. Wow. He tipped himself up onto his hands and he walked the firewalk on his hands. Man. Whoa. And in that moment, I thought, wow, you've been self-limiting. If he can do that, then I can go to America by myself and do the program. Aww. So I booked my flight and I booked my ticket. I went off and I did it. And since then, I've done all of his his uh, thing, became a team leader. I've been all over the world studying, um, taught, speaking, and so on. And I am incredibly grateful to that man. I have no idea who he is. You're talking about the man with the, with the hands? With, no, with- I... With yeah, Tony with, Tony Robbins or the man with the uh, no legs. The man, no, the man who who had no legs below the knee, who walked across hot coals on his hands. Wow, um, wouldn't that be awesome me. if you find out who it is? I'd yeah. love to, but with you know, we're we must about find him for you. Let's, we must find him. Let's put it out there. Let's put it out there in the Spursy Raw universe. I'd love to meet him because he hasn't got a. Uh, he's got no inkling wow. of the impact that he had. And not only on my life, but I told that story because I think it is so powerful a story. Well, Sarge will um, put out a $50,000 reward if for someone who finds him, right, Sarge? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. 75 is fine. That's okay. I'm sure it would be fine. <laughs> we just need an act. We just need somewhat of a description, Gina. You know, just red hair, you know, brown hair kind of thing. Do you remember what he looked I, like? The only thing I remember about him is it was a double amputee, um, and it was a guy. He was just for me that was a really pivotal moment and if anybody else looking at what I'd achieved because by that time I'd been a, a head teacher in a wheelchair since um this is now in 2006 I'd been a head teacher since 19, uh, 1984 in a wheelchair since 1987 you know I'd achieved a lot but he taught me such a powerful lesson mm. so how did you come to be the number one best-selling author of Thriving Not Surviving, The Five Secret Pathways to Happiness, Success, and Fulfillment. How that's did a, that all come to be? That's a hell of a plug yeah. right there. <laughs> she, just, she deserves it. Yeah, there you go. And then some. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'd written, um, I've written books before, and the previous book I'd written was called Chariots on Fire, An Illusion to My Wheelchair. Ah. Um, and while I was ahead I had a very strong sense of purpose and that I was fulfilling my purpose by developing not only the children but the staff and also teachers in lots of other schools but when I left in 2004 and I was doing I've always done life coaching for individuals and couples and I've worked with businesses and I lectured and you know all of those things but I had a growing sense that I there was a bigger purpose for me that there was so there was such toxic leadership and it was getting worse and there were so many people who were depressed stressed anxious that i needed to reach more people and so um 
and also my my thinking in terms of this strategy so chariots is a bit of my story and it's the strategies that i used at a personal level but what i'd recognized is that no matter whether people came to me as an individual or they came through relationship coaching or they were uh, was part of leadership coaching and training no matter where they came from that they needed in some form or other to look at the five pathways which are beliefs because what we believe becomes our reality um our relationships and every relationship is a reflection of the relationship we have with ourselves so creating a better relationship with self how people um look at success whether they fear failure or fear success whether they self sabotage how they manage change and transition the choices they make and everything we do or say is a choice even not choosing actively is a choice and the last one is that when people have got the trappings of success unless they're doing something which is in line with their true purpose then they have a sense of is this it and so i felt there was a need to write a book and the advice was you you don't make it too general you know do happiness or do success but i felt very strongly that actually we need it to be holistic mm. and so you need to look at the five pathways if you want to get the very best out of life and look at the Gosh, you're so you're so well rounded yeah, and look at the five pathways and balanced. absolutely you really are so gina can you tell everybody here we're about to go to a break and go on to our next guest can you tell everybody where they can get a hold of you and where they can learn more about gina garden So go to genuinely-u.com that's genuinely-u.com uh, and the word you um or if you're interested in enlightened leadership go to enlightenedleadership.co there's a genuinely you facebook group come and join it for free there's also um come and join me on linkedin you can find me through my name gina gardner or through genuinely you and there's an enlightened leadership um uh, linkedin uh, group for those who are interested in leadership so enlightenedleadership um dot co and genuinely hyphen you dot uh, dot com there you go gina get it all in that's awesome everybody so check it out gina gardner everybody you've been a great guest thank you very much we got to take a quick break and when we come back we'll have james perper on the line so hang tight everybody a word from our sponsor Step into your authentic self and find genuine power with Gina Gardner, number 1 international best-selling author, motivational speaker, empowerment coach, and transformational leadership trainer. Gina suffered a serious accident at 29, leaving her paralyzed and learning how to walk not once but twice. It's not the challenges which define us, but what we do with them. You are not broken and you are enough. Gina has dedicated her life to helping people recognize that you have a choice to be happy, to be successful, and to live life full of joy and fulfillment. Access your inner resources to live life fearlessly. Find your true purpose and feel self-confident. Connect with Gina Gardner at genuinely-u.com. That's Gina Gardner at genuinely-u.com. Shirley Ennebrad knows firsthand how to cope with the range of emotions, uncertainty, and grief, both during illness and worst-case scenario, after death. 
To help others, she's authored two grief books, Over the Rainbow Bridge, the story of her young son, Corey, and his inspiring journey as he battled leukemia, and Six World Lessons on Coping with Grief, 100 Lessons to Help You and Your Loved Ones Deal with Loss. To purchase her books, go to www.shirleyannabred.com. All right, everybody, and welcome back to Spiritually Raw. Thank you very, very much. And again, check, make sure you all check Gina Gardner out there. So, hey, we got another great guest for you, April, huh? We sure do. Uh, James Papura. Both James and his wife have overcome the deepest, darkest moments of their lives to create amazing lives. Fast forward 15 years, after many ups and downs and a lot of hard work, they recently sold their tech company, one of the world's largest construction software companies, and they created a personal evolution company called Powerful You, along with producing a film, a book, um, and assessments to help others transform their lives through evolving their perceptions. They are the authors of Perception, Seeing is Not Believing. All right. Bring on James to the show, please. Hey, James. How you doing, brother? I'm doing great. How are you guys? Good. What an amazing guest you guys just interviewed. It was it was a great interview. Oh yeah, Aww, thanks, thanks. I appreciate thank it. You. Yeah, yeah. Hope she hope she enjoyed it too. Hope you yeah. enjoy yours too. This is going to be a good time. So let's get right into it, my friend. So before you met 15 years ago, you and your wife, from what I understand, both of your lives had hit rock bottom. Can you tell me what happened? Well, I mean, for me, I was sitting in solitary confinement in a jail cell. Um, and my wife was picking herself up off of a bathroom floor after a brutal suicide attempt. That's pretty rock bottom. Yeah, that, that'll do it, man. What would you go to jail for? So I was, you know, I was kind of a homeless drug addict. I was um, just doing small petty crimes to support my habit. Um, I made the wrong police officer mad at me as a part of getting arrested. I ran away. And so they put me in solitary confinement to punish me. For how long? 15 months. 15 you months. were in solitary confinement for 15 months? Solitary confinement for 15 months. How did you not lose your mind? Well, it's funny because, you know, one of two things happens. There's, you know, so I only got out of my cell one hour every other day to shower and to go into a concrete yard alone. You know, I didn't have any human touch. You know, we could yell through the doors and talk to one another. It was kind of this glass jail, so I could see people. Um, but really, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I don't know if that's always the case, but it certainly was for me. But not everybody in that cell block was so lucky. There were a few people that attempted suicide and at least one that accomplished it. But really, you know, for me, it was I was locked in the cell with the person I was scared of most, which was me. So is it like you see on the television where you can only see through like a, a rectangle at like an inch by three inches? Like enough for them to put in the food kind of thing? Yeah. No, this, is, this was a modern brand new jail, right? And so all the pods look the same. And this one was like, it was kind of like a uh, Lex Luthor glass cell, oh, right? Oh, God, you, okay. There were big windows, so you could see the other inmates in their glass cells. Mm. Uh, and you could certainly yell through the door, uh, and you could see out into the pod, but it was all glass. Mm. Did they let you read and stuff? They did. <laughs> well, I don't think I'd be sitting here talking to you if they didn't let me read. All right. Um, they, certainly, they certainly did let me read, and I read a lot. Yeah, what else are you going to do? S sit ups, Medi crunches, and read. Med meditate, I would imagine. Push ups, maybe? Yeah, 
And, yeah, I was I was pretty fit when I got out for sure. I did a lot of push-ups. And yeah, I think my record was I could do 600 push-ups in 35 minutes. Wow! Oh my yeah, gosh! Yeah, you could See, how'd you fit that in with all the time? No, no time on your hands, man. Oh my gosh! So, so going going fast forward here a bit. Then, so how did you meet Steph? So shortly getting after out of after getting out of jail, I met her, and you know I kind of exposed myself very early in the conversation because I immediately knew that. This was somebody that I liked a lot, and I didn't want to start our relationships off in a lie. So about three or four days after I met her, I told her everything about me and everything about my past and that I intended to change. And um, and so that was kind of the start of our relationship. And but she it, actually it believed you. Start for sure. What's that? And she believed you, obviously. Uh, you know, she did. I don't think she to this day knows why she believed me. Right. I think sometimes she questions it, right? Yeah. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm just kidding. But she, you know, it was it was an interesting start to her relationship. But basically what I told her on that day was, hey, I'm on the way up. I'm rebuilding my life. I'm going to make something great out of myself. Um, you know, do you want to join me on this journey or not? You know, and. And she respected the fact that I didn't want to start the relationship off on a lie because it would have been very easy not to tell the story. Uh, but I just thought to myself, well, here's an amazing woman. And if she finds this out six months from now, a year from now, You're done. it's going to destroy this relationship. Yeah, you would have been toast. Yeah, there's, there's no coming back from that. No. So um, did somebody introduce you to or did you happen to meet her in like a restaurant? How, how did that actually we met, happen? We worked in the same building. We met in the hallway. Aww. Uh, you know, if you, if you watch our movie, the stories, the stories in the movie, but it, it was a really awkward exchange in a hallway. Uh, it was a, it was a story based on a, a, we both had a very different perception of that day and the situation surrounding our meeting. And it's kind of funny to watch it unfold. So she is, she almost commits suicide. You're in solitary confinement. You run into each other in a hallway. Now, how do you get a job? How, how do you get a job and then also sell like the number one technology software construction company? How does all that happen? That's a great question. In Nobody's a short period in time. The story about how I got my, my first job in technology, I wrote it into the book, right? And it's kind of an interesting story because I remember, you know, Steph had taught me how to write my first email and then she made a resume for me and we sent the resume out and I had a, a job um, interview at this, this technology training company. And when I went in for the interview, the guy said, you're hired, right? And he'd hired me off the resume. And just before I left, he said, hey, would you fill out an application for our records? And I knew there was that question on the application. Yeah. It was like, have you ever been convicted of a felony? And I can only imagine my face went white. And I said, of course. And I asked him where the restroom was. And I, I went in the restroom. And I stayed in there for a long period of time debating what to do. And when I came out, I filled out the application. But what I did was is I left the question blank. Hmm. Right? Okay. I just didn't answer it. And, yeah. you know, we can debate whether or not that was dishonest, but you know, essentially what happened was is I knew if I answered it, it would be a crime. I promised myself I would never do another crime, but I knew if I, this was a good job, more money than I'd ever made in my life. And I knew that if I answered it, you know, had answered it correctly, that they wouldn't have hired me. So I didn't answer it. And a few months later, you know, I get this call into the office and the owner calls me in the office and there's my mugshot shot sitting on his computer screen. 
And he very frustratedly looks at me and goes, you know, I've found out some really disturbing things about you. And I said, yeah. I said, well, they're all true, first of all. And, you know, he he kind of grilled me to make sure that I wasn't a sex offender or anything else or a danger to anybody else in the organization. And he goes, well, if you would have answered this question, I wouldn't have hired you. And if you'd have lied on it, I would have had you arrested. And I said, well, I know. That's why I didn't answer it because I just wanted a chance to prove myself. And I had, in fact, did. I'd become one of their top salespeople and I, I was rising to be a very successful person in that organization. And I think he respected that, you know, that I wanted to just prove myself and allowed me to stay, luckily enough. Good for you. No one's going to let a great salesperson slip through their fingers unless yeah, they're insane. He was, he was when I left his office, he was like, go back to your desk. I'm going to run a background check on you. And if there's anything violent in your past, I'm going to fire you. Yeah. Because um, he wanted to make sure I wasn't a danger to the other people in the organization, which was understandable. But um, there wasn't, you know, it was just all the petty crime and uh, stuff that I had done. So, you know, he had respected it. But that was kind of my start in my unlikely technology career because I didn't even know how to send an email. So did you ever have an urge yeah. to go back to the drugs? You know, <clears throat> I was out for probably let's call it just over a year before I met Steph. And, you know, I, there were a couple of times, you know, one of the things I remember when they called me, so I was in jail and they called me. I, I was supposed to be released and I wasn't released. They sent me to another state cause I was stupid enough to cross state lines and write some checks across state lines. And then one day they called me and they, they said, roll up, I said, why am I rolling up? And they said, well, you're getting out of here. And the first thing I did was I went and I puked because I had no idea what I was going to do because I was really scared. And so for that first year, it was, you know, I had to complete a drug rehab program, but it was really hard, you know, to launch, right? Because I was so scared I was going to make a mistake. I was so scared that I was going to, you know, end up back on drugs. Like, you know, I mean, I got the worst jobs. You know, I was in a couple of really bad relationships, but it was just like there was a lot of fear there. Um, but it, it was never a serious consideration at that point. But I think that if I didn't find footing when I did, that that was definitely a, a possibility. Was it easy for you? I mean, you know, to, when you think about this and putting your details, your personal details out here like this, I mean, you know. Was that kind of an was that an impulsive thing for you? Was that like, oh, you know, I can just do this now. I got nothing else to lose. Uh, what do you mean? You know, your personal details. Your, your personal details about your life and what you've done and where it's got you to where you're at right now. Was it easy for you to do that? No. So one of the things, you know, so you know, let me back up a little bit for the listeners who don't know. I mean, so what our book is about perception. Our movie is about perception. Our company is about perception. You know, and you, what we're trying to demonstrate through telling our stories. When my, my wife was a little girl, she was she was sexually abused. And when I was a, a young boy, my, you know, I went to kindergarten every day, my teacher called me stupid, right? Wow. Um, and she made the whole class call me stupid because I was put in the special ed class. And what we were trying to show through telling our stories is everybody's on a path to somewhere and without intervention, you're gonna end up in that place. But you can shift and change that path if you decide to change the information you're accessing to form your perceptions in your world, you know, what dictates your life's path. And so a lot of what my wife and I did when we got together is we started talking about perceptions and emotions and we were trying to rebuild our lives and try to figure out what the mechanism for creation 
because I had this moment in jail and it was an epiphany I had. And I used to write these long lists of people who had harmed me. And one day I looked down at this list of people and I realized the only common denominator between all of those people was me. And so the thought I had was either I created all of these situations, right? Or I created none of them. Either I was the creator of my life or I wasn't. I couldn't have created some of my life. And so I got to thinking about what that meant for me. And what that meant for me was, you know, if I had created my existence, it meant I had to own everything that had happened to me. But if I wasn't, it meant I really was a victim and I probably didn't want to play anymore. And it was on that day I decided that I was going to own all my experience and take ownership of my life, even if I didn't know what that meant. On that day, I took my power back. And when I got out of jail, I very much separated from the story. I didn't tell the story about jail or drugs or anything for years because I, I just I was embarrassed of it, quite frankly. And I needed to detach from telling that victim story. And so when we went to write the book and make the movie, I actually had to sit my older, you know, young adult and teenage kids down and tell them about our past before they were going to see it in the movie or read it in a book. Wow. So we showed it to what we find is that when you tell your story, you give other people permission to tell your story because they see some of your their story in yours. And so it opens people up. A friend of mine likes to say, you know, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, right? And so when people see what I did or what my wife did and what we came back from, they always go, well, I wasn't that bad. And if they can do it, then I can do it. There you go. Well said. So James, uh, we'll be right back. Uh, hang tight, everybody. We've got to take a quick word from our sponsor. More with James when we get back. And we're going to find out what is powerful you. And I'd like to l learn more about this movie that, you keep, that you've talked about a couple of times. So hang tight, everybody. Be right back. Welcome to the world of Jeff Dawson, 35-year road construction veteran to a multi-genre author whose books range from a true love story of his soulmate to a historical perspective of vampires versus the Third Reich. Jeff's unique perspective on life and the way he dealt with the back-to-back -back tragedies will amaze you with eye-opening revelations. Lose yourself in Jeff's books such as A Terror at the Sterling, Love's True Second Chance, and Final Delivery, and so much more. Visit Amazon.com and get copies of Jeff Dawson's books today. Jeff's books also make great gifts and great stocking stuffers. <laughs> All right, everybody, and welcome back to Spiritually Raw. James Perpero with us here today. And James, let's dive right. Sarge, Sarge, I want you to jump in here. I know you probably got some. I hear you in the background. Maybe I don't hear him in the background. <laughs> All right, so he's not in the background. He'll, he'll jump in when he gets there. Okay, so James, tell us about Powerful You. So Powerful You was Steph and I's way to give back. You know, at the end of our journey, I, I promised if I'd ever learned what it took to, to create my life consciously that I would share those ideas and experiences with others. And it's our way of disrupting and recreating the personal development space. So... 15 years is a short amount of time to do what you've done. I mean, you not only worked for a software company, but you actually created the largest construction software company that you sold. And then you created Powerful You. How long, which is 15 years is not a long amount of time to go from, uh, you know. Uh, Zero to a thousand. Exactly. How long did it actually take you once you started getting moving that all this happened? And was it like just kaboom? 
Or did it take? No. So it took me from the time I got out of jail, it took me nine years to get to my first million dollars. Um, and maybe that doesn't seem like a long period of time to some, but it seemed like forever to me, right? But the level of commitment that we put in was we were working on ourselves day in and day out. And so, you know, one of the things we've talked about the movie a little bit and the book a little bit, but, you know, we are, you know, creating the person, recreating the personal development space to teach people the two principles that dictate their lives, which are perception and emotions, right? That dictates everything that you do, everything that you are. And everything that we do is scientifically backed. You know, our movie, for instance, you know, just won Best Film at the L.A. Film Festival. Congratulations. You know, best Picture, right? It just won Best Documentary at the Hollywood Film Festival. It's winning awards like crazy because we take people on a very raw journey and we make them understand the mechanisms by which they create their existence. And so this was, you know, 10 years every day, every night, all in, trying to figure out what it takes to consciously create your existence beyond the woo-woo law of attraction type stuff. All right, let's talk about that. What is your, well, I guess from hearing the words woo-woo from you, I kind of get a vibe for what you think about law of attraction, but can, can I just like to hear from your perspective? What do you think about law of attraction? Do you think it actually does work? Yeah, but it's not what people think it is. Um, I absolutely think it works. And what I would say is, is that, you know, every spiritual principle has a equivalent in the 3D reality that we live in. And the, the, re, the spiritual principle that dictates the law of attraction really is perception. And so here's how I would explain it to you is that, you know, when I was taught the law of attraction, you know, when the movie came out, and we all watched it, it was this magical force that would bring things to you, right? And that still kept the power outside of my control. So I really wanted to understand what it dictated it. And our title of the book is the clue about the law of attraction. And it's called perception seeing is not believing. Well, what is, if seeing is not believing, the opposite's actually true. It's believing is seeing. And so the underlying principle behind perception is you cannot see something unless you believe it to be possible. The more you believe it, the more likely you are to see it. The less you believe it, the less likely you are to see it. And so I can give you a really simple example. Do you think that you can have the thing you want right in front of your face and just not see it? What do you guys think? This is where the Jeopardy sound back. That music would come in really good. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> do I think that? Do I think I could have the thing that I want and just not see it? Yes. I think you got to right see it. it. You got to see it. I mean, it's some capacity, wouldn't you say? And I think no. you'd have. So let me, let me, no. Go ahead. I was going to say, I think you have to uh, become it. So let's. Let me ask. I'm going to give you guys a short story to demonstrate the principle. All right. So imagine a guy who wants more than anything to be loved. He wants to be in a relationship, but he has abysmal self-esteem. He has a really poor self-image of himself. One day, this guy walks into a store, he walks up to the counter. The woman behind the counter starts flirting with him. My question for you is, does he see it? Does he see does it? He depends recognize on which glasses he has on that Is this like moment? a half glass, half full kind of thing? Does he have the rose-colored glasses on or the rose-colored glasses off? He has really low self-esteem. He he's see not it seeing it at all. Then, yeah, no, it. he's not seeing anything. Yeah, he just uh, okay, he's so, just he's so, just seeing the this, the twelve pack he just bought. Yeah, right. So that's it, right? So what I'm saying is this: if if he if he has the thing that he wants most in front of his face, the opportunity to get it right in front of him, 
what if that's happening to us? And that's perception. Ah, it is happening to us. Oh my God, you're so day. right. Did you get the aha moment? I totally got it. Did it's you? like, duh, it's right there in front of you. Open your damn eyes so, so you can you, see it. You don't see what you believe. You, you, right? Seeing is not believing. Believing yeah. is seeing. Right. The girl was there. She was flirting with him, but he couldn't see it. But he wasn't catching we it. We all have the things that we want most in the world. As soon as we set those intention for something, those opportunities start showing up, but we can't see them until we believe they're possible. Right. And so what the law of attraction is, is when you're staring at that vision board, it is not to drag something that is not there into your awareness. It's to foster beliefs so that you'll see what's already there, mm. period. Mm -hmm. And if you believed it, you would already see it. Therefore, you would already have it. And so that's the key is fostering belief. And people just don't get it. They think, well, I don't ever get these opportunities. We live in a universe of infinite possibilities, the problem is you can only see what you believe to be possible. The more likely, the more you believe it, the more likely you are to see it. The less you believe it, the less likely you are to see it. So, and so based on this guy's level of belief, you know, the fact is the girl was flirting with him, but he couldn't see it. And so, you know, I, I always give people a really easy example of, of how intention works and how the mind works. I want you to think about the car you're driving right now. And I want you to think about when you decided to buy that car or if you bought it on the lot, right? And the second that car became yours or in your awareness, that car is everywhere. Oh, like, right. You oh, see yeah, it yeah, everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's so true. Driving my car. Yeah. yeah. It's like almost embarrassing right. now getting it. You know what I mean? Right. It's like it's everywhere. It's like, oh my God, why did I get this? Why did I spend money on this one? Hey, so tell us a little bit about how do you, you know, because I know a lot of people that are going to be listening to this show. So how do you go from a book to like, now I got a movie and my movie's here. So how did that, how did that journey happen there? Well, I mean, so when I, Actually, we, we started filming the movie for To Backbone, an event. And when we filmed it, we had a movie. When I wrote the outline to, for the movie, I realized that I had a, we had a book. And the book reads like a novel. The movie is unlike anything you've ever seen. It's raw. It's real. And it's based in scientific principles. Everything I'm talking to you today is based in science, right? And so it's just been an evolution of thought and ideas to try to help people get the information they need to move their lives forward. And the underlying principle is very, very simple, right? The underlying principle is everything that you believe on the outside, you'll or on the inside, you'll see on the outside. So if you think of life as a video game, because your perception is not based in reality, you're only basically you're playing a video game and you're interacting with your beliefs. So if you're trying to change things from the outside in, you're basically, it's like watching a movie and you're slapping the screen, expecting what's on the film to change. So what my wife and I discovered is as we started shifting what we believed about ourselves and the world around us, the world around us started shifting to meet us and these opportunities started showing up really fast. You know, it was like, um, um, God, why am I failing to remember his name? But one of my favorite sayings is, is that when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Mm -hmm. They literally change. Is that is that you mm, back there, Sarge? Oh yeah. Did you jump? Absolutely. Did you jump back in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been here the whole time. I don't want to miss this. All this right. What, 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 what do you got for James, brother? Well, I mean, it's it's actually what I've been studying for quite some time myself, and. And I, I'm, I'm like right there, 100% with them. Is we have to operate from where we want to be, 
instead of to where we want to be because the, the to is don't exist the from is means that it already exists it's already there for our um uh, use but most of us just don't perceive and i love the fact that he's saying perception because it is our perception our perception of whether something is good or bad or or right or wrong is our perception because it's different for somebody else all right well said buddy so how can everybody where can people see your movie so they can see it on our website we have a platform to see our movie it's www.powerful or hyphen the letter u.com and we have a movie we have an assessment you can find out exactly what beliefs are holding you back we've got the book reads like a novel because we tell a very raw story inside of that we've even got a content like a netflix for personal development called the powerful universe where you can engage with a lot of different teachers on different subjects um so there's a lot of content and different things to do but i promise you you will not regret watching this movie Awesome. Thank you so much. And so what's up? What is up next in your life for the two of you? So, you know, for the last year and a half, we've developed all this content. Like I said, so we have the book, we have the movie. Those are just releasing. We're just officially starting to push those out this month. We have a women's event in Utah next month. Um, we have this assessment it's called Perception Sketch that will tell you the per perceptions that are holding you back based on mindset and the Carol Dweck version of the word, responsibility equaling power and your capacity to feel safe. Um, and then we also have um, this, this content universe. We're working with, with influencers all over the country to bring the best content to people to try to make the personal development space based on science and affordable. And so right now, now that we've built all this, we're going to start pushing it out and start getting it out to the public so people Very can cool. see, the, see right. and get the information they need to change their lives. Right on, right on. That is James Perper, everybody. That, thank you very much for being on the show. Really just enjoyed that. Yeah, you want to tell them how to get to your website real yeah. quick. Powerful dash or hyphen the letter u.com. Powerfulu.com. Powerfulu.com, everybody. And also I'd like to thank Gina Gardner for being on there, author of number one bestseller, Thriving Not Surviving. So make sure you check her <coughs> out too. So that was a great interview, too. And I'd like to give a shout out to our friend coming up. Uh, she's got a new show starting out. Where are you now? Gabrielle Cardona. So you'll be hearing it more than likely after this show. So enjoy that. OK, yep. congratulations, Gabrielle. We look forward to hearing more. And thank you for tuning in. And remember, tune in often. Tell all your friends. And most importantly, may all your dreams come true. Many blessings. Enjoy Awaken by singer-songwriter Scott Howard from his latest album, Ascended Man. Look up and I see Stars out tonight Look up and I feel Things just ain't right Look up and I hear the people cry. I look up and I, I wonder why. Don't you want to know what is? life
but a flame A star burning out is the same have changed for me I look up and I feel the ceiling has rearranged look up and I hear the dolphins cry I look up and I just don't know why Have we lost our way? Will we be here another day? Are these the end of days? Will we be here to mend our ways? to one 